Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, climate change is leaving its mark on the Pacific Crest Trail, the roughly 2,600-mile route that stretches from Mexico to Canada through California's Mojave Desert, giant sequoias, and alpine meadows, is a bucket list adventure. But charred landscapes, persistent drought, they're changing the calculus for many. This hour, we'll talk with people who've hiked the PCT recently about what it looks like now, the adjustments they've had to make, and what it tells us about the changes our warming climate will bring to the storied trail in years to come. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Thousands of people each year attempt to hike the 2,600-mile stretch from Mexico to Canada along the Pacific Crest Trail. 1,600 miles of it run through California, through our deserts and snowy mountain passes. It's always been a tough journey, but it's getting even tougher now because of issues related to climate change, raising questions about how long the option of doing an epic through-hike will last. Have you hiked the Pacific Crest Trail or parts of it? What was it like for you? Did you notice changes brought by fires or drought? You can tell us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at KQED Forum, by emailing forum at kqed.org, or by calling 866-733-6786. Joining me now is Scott Wilkinson, Content Development Director at the Pacific Crest Trail Association, a nonprofit focused on protecting and preserving the Pacific Crest National Scenic Trail. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Good morning. Also with us is Rowan Morgarity. Morgarity's recent piece for the New York Times is titled Heat, Water, Fire, How Climate Change is Transforming the Pacific Crest Trail. Rowan, really glad to have you on as well. Great to be here. And I'll start with you, Rowan. If I could first, could you just talk about what's made the PCT such a draw for people every year, the allure of the trail, what it occupies for people in their minds? Yeah, so the First thing that it's actually maybe helpful to start with is a distinction between the through hikers who are, um, you know, like Cheryl Strayed's memoir, which was later adapted into the movie, those that um, the movie Wild take three, four, five, six months to hike the whole way. And I think that's the much smaller group numerically, um, you know, somewhere Scott will have real numbers, but, you know, say a few hundred to a little over a thousand people. Um, who do that each year. Um, but 
that's the group that I guess sort of drives the popular imagination of the Pacific Crest Trail. These people who put down their lives or decide to take on a massive challenge um, at a point of transition. Um, and then, of course, because the Pacific Crest Trail threads its way through California, Oregon, and Washington through all these amazing um, parks and national forests, there's a much larger group of people who, whether it's cross-country skiing or hiking or trail running or mountain biking, will cross pieces of it. Um, and so I think for both groups, it's just a hugely important um, feature of the Western wilderness um, for the former, a way to see the whole thing at once. And for the latter, maybe a way to imagine a longer trip, even if you're just out with your kids on a Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, thousands attempt to hike parts of it um, every year, for sure. And if they do, they can be rewarded by some really incredible experiences, right, Rowan? It certainly seems that way. Um, I, you know, I, I got out uh, at the end of July and just hiked a three-day section um, in far northern California, um, just south of the Oregon border. And it was amazing, you know, when I'd start these conversations with through hikers who you can usually kind of recognize because they're wearing packs that seem way too small for how far they're going and they just look kind of very lived in. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I'd start these conversations and say, you know, well, what made you decide to hike the Pacific Crest Trail? And I had one guy who answered that question by saying, well, five years ago, I stopped drinking. Mm -hmm. um, another guy who had, was a cancer survivor who had recovered from this terrible um, journey with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And when he found that walking was no longer quite so painful, decided to take on a challenge. And so really all over the trail, whether it's recent college graduates or people with, you know, really harrowing health journeys to relate. Um, you hear amazing stories like that. Yeah. Uh, and especially amazing because Scott, it's hard to hike the trail. There are parts of it that are really, really hard before you even add in the effects of climate change. Can you just give us a sense of the kind of terrain and elevation hikers encounter? Absolutely, yeah. The the hiking the entire Pacific Crest Trail is an extraordinary feat of endurance, um, comparable to any other significant endurance um, attempt on Earth. Really, um, as Rowan mentioned, every year we issue thousands of long distance permits to people planning to travel 500 miles or more on right. the trail. And typically, not more than about 15% of those people actually go the distance and complete the trail. Um, so it's very much a mental game, we find. Um, obviously, physical conditioning matters, but what we found is that the, the, your mindset matters uh, a great deal more. Just your ability to tolerate discomfort, to be able to uh, really, in a sense, almost treat hiking like a job. You know, you have to get up every morning. Most long-distance hikers will travel anywhere from 20 to 30 miles a day, um, day after day after day, which in and of itself is extraordinary. And yeah, it's uh, it, the trail spans, as Rowan mentioned, a, a huge a diversity of, of um, geological terrain, geological and, and, and terrain and, and ecosystems, everything from old growth forests to volcanic landscapes where you're walking for miles across lava beds, um, high mountain peaks covered in glaciers and snow, you name it. Hikers really have to be prepared for all of those different conditions. So, Rowan, as you said, you, of course, 
hiked a, a portion of it, but but also intercepted people who were hiking the whole thing so that you could get a sense of what uh, the trail was like as of la- uh, as of this past summer. And I'm just curious what jumped out at you in terms of some of the changes or or just some of the way that the train looked as a result of recent events like drought or fire. So the people that I um, spoke with um, just around, basically just north of Mount Shasta, which is maybe a good landmark for your listeners, um, had just come through about 140 trail miles that um, burned or, you know, burned in kind of a mottled way in last year's Dixie fire. Uh, That's the most trail miles that any fire has burned um, since the PCT was created, mm-hmm. um, you know, that Dixie fire is obviously the first fire that jumped the crest of the Sierra Nevada last year, which was sort of a, a major event in, um, the hiking community just for what it signaled. So the people that I spoke to, um, a lot of them had very vivid impressions to relate, beginning with the question of, do I even hike this 140 mile stretch where it's going to be a lot of soot and very little shade and all these sort of standing charred trunks um, that you at least have to think about when you think about where to camp. Um, Because if you have a windy night, you don't want to be sort of in the way of anything that could be settling or falling. And so, um, yeah, I mean, they said they had to walk farther apart in order to avoid kicking up black dust that would sort of cover them regardless of what they did. Um, hmm. They had to be a little bit more careful about water sources, even though it's a, a pretty wet portion of California, um, just to make sure, you know, they got, um, I guess, intel from fellow hikers about, you know, what's up ahead or, um, you know, how far do I need to go before I can next refill my water bottles. And above all, and this is something that I really hadn't thought about until I was out there on the trail, um, shade is a massive variable when you're hiking. And if you're coming through more than 100 miles where most of the trees have lost their needles, um, even if they are going to survive, um, and the ground is black like soot, um, you're just going to absorb a lot more sun and a lot more heat. And that means you need to carry more water. It needs your, you know, means your pace might be a little bit different. And so I think the the thing that I just hadn't realized even setting out to do this story is um, all of the practical kind of safety considerations uh, that would come up in light of fire and just hotter summers that we're beginning to see more of. Yes. You also talked about a, a group of hikers that were willing to take water uh, from a a cistern of water that that smelled and tasted bad and had a dead rat floating in it why did that jump out at you well experienced hikers know that um i think rodents get into water sources and settings like that and probably always have um but the reason that stood out to me is um to begin with this is in a, a, a section of the trail that's mainly a uh, desert it's in Southern California um, and it's already a section where people have to think about going you know let's say 10 15 20 even 25 miles between reliable water sources and so cisterns like that um, are are out there so that hikers can hike safely to the next spot right it's different from the sort of one gallon, um, jugs that people often leave on the side of the trail just to hype, 
help hikers, which are called, um, excuse me, uh, water caches, you know, these are maintained, as I understand it, by the, you know, land managers, um, the public agencies um, that, that run these places. And it just said to me, you know, you'd have to make me feel pretty dehydrated and pretty uh, thirsty before I started to, I guess, hold my nose and drink through the taste of a dead rat and, you know, <laughs> worry about kind of crossing the bridge of what might happen to me as a result, you know, when, when I came to it. Um, and so that just underscored very vividly the choices that hikers are making on trail and that water really is the number one resource for survival. And that made it very clear that they think about it in those terms. We're talking about the Pacific Crest Trail with Rowan, Rowan Morgarity of the New York Times, Scott Wilkinson of the Pacific Crest Trail Association, which is focused on protecting and preserving the PCT, and with you, our listeners, about whether you've hiked the PCT or parts of it, and if you, if your trip was impacted by climate change, we'd like to know, or if you also just have questions about what it's like to hike it, you're welcome to call 866-733-6786 or to post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Gerard writes, I hiked 1,100 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail from early June to mid-September of 1974. In June, between the elevations of 10,000 and 13,000 feet in the Sierra, the snow was quite deep. We sometimes broke camp at 4 a.m. to enable us to walk on frozen snow. By 2 p.m., we were sinking up to our hips in wet snow and would call it a day. All that snow resulted in fast, turbulent, and cold creeks. Crossing them was the most dangerous part of the trip. Our leather boots were always wet, Ooh, so blisters were a problem. I'm still amazed none of us ever got an infection from lancing our blisters with our Swiss army knives. Wow, Gerard, thanks for sharing that description, and we'll hear more from you, our listeners, and our guests after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about the war on Ukraine. Ukrainian troops continue to force Russia into retreat in occupied regions in the east and south. And in Russia, hundreds of thousands have been fleeing the country to avoid the draft. Protests are mounting. We talk about the war and its impacts on Russia. 
Today, we're talking about the Pacific Crest Trail and how, while it's never been an easy hike, climate change is making it harder. Rowan Morgarity wrote a piece for the New York Times titled Heat, Water, Fire, How Climate Change is Transforming the Pacific Crest Trail. And Scott Wilkinson is with us with the Pacific Crest Trail Association, which is focused on protecting and preserving the Pacific Crest National Scenic Trail. I'd like to bring into the conversation now Hasmin Ortega, who through-hiked the PCT in 2019. Hasmin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Mina, for having me. Uh, and you, when you through-hiked it, while we talked about drought and fires a little bit more before the break, for you, it was the impact of extreme weather. Can you talk a little bit about what affected your hike when you did it? Yes. Uh, the year that I threw hike, 2019, uh, I was preparing for this hike months ahead, saving up money, uh, buying my gear, but also watching the weather very closely, especially that winter. Uh, California, as you know, in January, February tend to be very, very wet months. So I was watching the news and uh, the snowpack reports. And uh, with every ensuing storm, my dread began to grow. <laughs> <laughs> because we know that you know, all this uh, rain turns into snow that, that sticks around in the Sierras into, you know, well into spring and, and even summer. Wow. And, and when did you do it? When did you leave? I started March 29th. Uh, I began in Campo, California, which is the, uh, the southern terminus of the Pacific Crest Trail right next to the border fence with Mexico yeah. and uh, started hiking north. Why did you choose that time? Why is that the time that makes the most sense for hikers a lot of times, especially if they're going south to north? Well, for, I think for the average hiker, and you know, there is no average hiker, but they tend to be either on the younger side or on the older side, you know, out of college or, or retired, and uh, not a lot of people in the middle. Um, but I considered my own limitations and my own, uh, you know, pace and what I wanted to do on the trail. And I knew that I wasn't going to be doing 20 miles right off the bat. So uh, March is not a good uh, start time if you're hiking in a high snow year. But my reasoning was that I wanted to give myself time to, you know, get my hiking legs and, and get, you know, physically even more fit for the big climbs in the Sierra. And so, uh, you know, I was still early. I, I left Kennedy Meadows, which is the, the gateway to the Sierra on June 4th which was still, you know, there's a lot of snow uh, on on trail. And so uh, I can relate to your your caller, Gerard, <laughs> who, you know, I, I had a very similar experience, um, post-holing and starting early and really not covering that many miles. Yeah, you finished on October 7th of that year of 2019. So that means your anniversary when you completed it is coming up. Huh? It is. And it has me all feeling all sorts of ways. Uh, every, you know, every year that goes by, it's, uh, it's very uh, nostalgic time for me and, you know, kind of uh, remembering that really unforgettable experience. It's really yeah. like, tell us a little bit about it. What are the feelings that come up for you? What do you remember? Uh, well, I I want to I want to talk to that woman who finished. <laughs> I feel like we've had a pandemic, you know. So I went from living outside and and sleeping, uh, you know, on the on the floor and having complete freedom in the woods, to being, uh, you know, like all of us, uh, housebound, really, you know. Uh, so it was a very big uh, kind of whiplash uh, moment for me to 
to kind of go to those extremes. And, you know, I, I felt just so uh, not only free, but also I used my body and my mind, you know, not only the, the endurance feat that you talked about earlier, but just the, the problem solving, the adapting to the circumstances, the figuring out what to do when things don't go right, that, you know, I, I really missed that experience that was really heightened by being in nature and being with people who are sharing the same goal as you are. Wow. Let me go to caller Chris in Nevada City. Chris, you're on. Hi, thanks for having me. And I, right off the bat, just want to say the woman who just spoke kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, missing it and the the connection and the discipline required. Yeah, because you just threw hunt it yourself. Yes, yes, my husband and I. We are the other thing that makes it. We are on the older end of the spectrum. We had to retire to get that five month block of time that you actually need to get it. And so in our sixties, and weren't many of us, but it was um, magical. Um, and I think. We took about 10 years to plan, and in 2020, we were going to go, and then the COVID hit, so we delayed and uh, got finally got our, our permits. We started on April 13th because we want to start together, and they issue individual permits, and it, it, it's kind of an ordeal to get your start date, but we started April 13th, and it, we were lucky with the snow, and the snow levels were low. We lived near Sierra, so we knew what we would be encountering, but uh, the fires were challenged. There was a fair amount of skipping and coming back uh, to make up the miles, but um, if anybody in their 60s is thinking of doing this, I highly recommend it. Mm. It was one of the greatest things we've done. Well, congratulations, Chris. What what an accomplishment as well. Vicky tweets, my friends and I backpack every summer in Desolation Wilderness and take day hikes along the PCT. Seeing so many burned trees this year from the fire that started just weeks after we left last year was devastating. We wonder how long we'll be able to backpack there. Scott, a couple of things are coming up for me based on what Hasmin and, and Chris are saying and also what Vicky is tweeting here. Well, first of all, I understand that the time of year can be a really important that you leave to do it, especially if you're going south to north, can be really important with regard now to fire and trying to avoid what is usually the worst of the fire season. Can you talk a little bit about how that calculation takes place, especially now with more and more wildfires? Yeah, well, um, you've probably heard that traditionally in the distant past now, um, fire season was generally considered late summer, perhaps right. July or August through September or October. Um, now, many people are saying that fire season is not only longer, but in essence, year round, depending on what part of the, the country you're in. So this is definitely um, kind of a new reality, I think, um, for everybody. And of course, uh, the important thing to keep in mind with all of this is that, you know, the increased likelihood of a through hike ending wildfire, for example, is a direct result of climate change. Um, and climate change along the PCT can't really be fully described by one or even a few generalizations because of all of the different ecosystems the trail traverses. So the impacts from climate change are really going to be as diverse as the trail is itself. But um, two of probably the greatest changes that are going to affect the hiker experience along the trail are snow loss and temperature rise. Um, as we move more into the future, 
um, we are going to be seeing more years um, in which there is uh, lower and lower snow levels up in the Sierras and the higher elevations along the trail. Um, and then, of course, um, also it's going to get hotter. Um, and as we move farther into the 21st century, the likelihood of people having to hike in 100 degree plus temperatures will continue to climb. Um, all of that being said, I think that one of the things that that we've been trying to communicate to folks a lot, and Hazmin referred to this when she talked about the challenge of just trying to figure out, you know, your strategy from day to day when you're doing a through hike, is that, you know, what we've been emphasizing is that it's not really so much a question moving forward of whether or not people will be able to hike the trail. It's really a question of adaptability. And we believe that in the future, hikers are simply going to have to be more flexible. They may need to uh, flip-flop more, which is a, a, a long-distance hiking term for hiking perhaps a southern section of the trail and then flipping northward to hike a northerly stretch of the trail and then perhaps even flipping back southward again. Um, those types of hikes are going to become increasingly common. And uh, we also may find more and more people doing what we call section hiking the trail, which really in many ways has its own advantages because when you section hike a trail like the PCT, you can pick and choose what time of year you'd like to hike a given section of the trail and really try to pick it as far away from fire season as possible, again, depending on what part of the trail you're on. So, so I, think, uh, I think the overall trail experience will remain phenomenal well into the future, but it's definitely going to require a lot more flexibility and more adaptability on the part of hikers. As I mean, I imagine though that there's something about saying you did the through hike <laughs> <laughs> that maybe matters a lot, maybe to purists, but I'm just wondering. I, it, I, I'm sure what Scott, uh, what Scott is describing is incredibly rewarding, but I, I'm just curious. Well, you know, there's there's trail culture, you know, and, and a lot of opinions and the, the purists and traditionalists who want a continuous footpath, uh, uninterrupted, northbound, uh, usually. Uh, but like Scott said, I think you know, we will have to adapt to the, the changing conditions and the flip-flopping is a lot more common on the Appalachian Trail. So, and I think it will be more accepted and, and common on the Pacific Crest Trail. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, everybody's goals are different. Uh, a lot of people start with the intent of of doing the whole trail, but then find they don't like hiking or they don't like camping or they don't wow. enjoy the experience. <laughs> You would be surprised you know, <laughs> uh, how many people just decide to go and then figure it out. And, you know, that's great. I, I think everybody should try it. It's it's an amazing experience. Uh, so, you know, I think whatever people's goals are, you know, that's I think that's great. Any time in nature is is, uh, is a good thing. So, uh, but but we, yeah, so yeah. we will have to we will have to consider uh, flip flopping and also just a word on southbound hikers. Uh, you know, southbound wasn't as common in recent years. It's becoming more common on the PCT. Uh, but I think it will become harder to go southbound because they usually start later than the northbound hikers. They usually start June, July, because there's snow in the northern Cascades. And, uh, you know, if you start at that time, you kind of run into, you know, the Sierras in August or even some September when there's a lot of fires. And just last year, uh, the, the U.S. Forest Service closed 
uh, in the forest uh, around Labor Day. And I personally know a, a southbound through hiker last year who ended up leaving the trail altogether because, you know, she couldn't, um, you know, skip around. So uh, it, it will force uh, hikers to rethink uh, and to not have the expectation that, oh, I want I want a continuous footpath. If not, it's not going to be a success. I think that they need to you know be ready to adapt and uh, and change their plans. Well, let me go to caller Lego in San Francisco. Hi, Lego. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, go right ahead. Yeah, I just want to say, for one, I'm a fan of uh, Scott. Um, but uh, so I, I hiked... Um, uh, Novo northbound uh, in 2017. Uh, that's they consider that year that year of fire and ice. So that was a, a record snow year in the Sierra, um, and there we there was also record record heat waves. So I remember going through like the Mojave right before the Sierra, and it was 120 degrees every day, and you got like 20 mile stretches of no water. Um, so what with, with that? It's like like uh, creeks turn into rivers, and you got to cross those. And that year, I remember there's uh, two uh, young women uh, drowned um, crossing mm. uh, those rivers. Um, uh, yes. But uh, and then with the fire started when I got into Oregon, there were so many random small fires on trail. There was just almost no way you would have to like hike and then hike back, hitch around it, and do that several times. So I ended up. Um, just hiking part of the Oregon coast trail and going back up the cascade locks where we got evacuated from, uh, the Columbia river gorge fire. Uh, I don't know if you, that was a huge fire. I don't know if you remember that, but, um, wow. and then even about 40 miles into Washington, there was another fire. Uh, so we had to hike back, hitchhike around that. Um, and I, you know, was able to finish, but it was, it wasn't, I wasn't a through hike. It was more of like a, long distance section hike um but you Did know it get there's really... something else too i wanted the to... yeah oh god well i was just wondering how frustrating it to... got for you lego when you had to keep encountering these things you know you know i i kind of um for me i just had six months um to to go on this hike and you know that i didn't know if i'd ever get another chance to, to do something like this and i just you know uh-huh. i just kind of went with it. it you know after like geez after like 500 miles like mentally and physically you know i'm like just ready to you know i'm and and you know hiker mode um but i, I did want to bring up so i just i just got back from the colorado trail um and they're going through this the same issue in Colorado. So with with the, like extreme drought, and then also uh, uh, the, the spruce pine, they have a beetle that's kind of doing the same thing. Uh, you know, the the trees out here in, in California along the, the trail. Um, and yeah. so it's 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 I like especially like you know you talk to a lot of locals because you got to hitchhike uh, in the in the town and back the trail to resupply. And just talking with the locals, you know, they they said, you know, it's been going on for years, um, and it's like a big concern, even as, you know, that uh, far east in, in Colorado. And so, yeah. it, it's, you know, it's really, uh, you know, going on these these through hikes is really for me. I get to see things with climate change that a lot of people maybe can't um, see visually, like happening in front of them, but you know, I'm able to see, uh, and it it is uh, really concerning. 
Well, well, Lego, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Rowan, one of the things that I felt as I read your pieces, both the heat, water, fire piece, but also your notebook, Food in a Bear Canister, a Reporter Hits the Trail, that piece as well. I, I wondered if you yourself experienced or you imagine that it, it is harder to lose yourself in that sort of meditative state of being in nature when there are sort of these increased issues, dangers, and changes to the landscape brought by climate change? Undoubtedly, that's true for some hikers. I, I'm remembering now an interview I did with a, a guy who's been section hiking the PCT in 500 mile stretches. And he said almost the opposite, not that you're not thinking about climate change and thinking a little bit about the sort of globalized anxiety that our era can produce, but that you are hiking so far every single day that you live kind of a stripped down existence where it's just, where can I sleep? Where can I eat? Where can I rest? Where can I drink? And so obviously the practical considerations of fire and smoke and all of that will enter into the equation very quickly, um, depending on where you are. But uh, I think for a lot of hikers, the physical um, task is so daunting, and maybe this is something I can speak to, that um, you can't help but get into that meditative state. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> um, I have a couple more comments that I I want to read. Scott writes, great segment, any winter ski crossings of the PCT? Can you talk about that and how climate change is affecting it? Scott Wilkinson, winter ski crossings of the PCT? Well, to date, there has been one um, through ski, I guess you would call it, of the PCT. Um, and that was done a couple of years ago by uh, Justin Lichter and Sean Forey. They've actually written about this. Um, and it was an extraordinary effort on their part, um, done entirely on backcountry skis. Um, but otherwise, I would say that there are not any, this is not a popular thing from, through skiing the trail. That said though, winter recreation is increasingly becoming a really fantastic um, sort of option for enjoying the trail, mm -hmm. um, such as snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, things like that. We'll have more about the PCT after the break. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about hiking the Pacific Crest Trail this hour. It's never been easy, but climate change is making it 
harder, if not quite different. Rowan Moore Garrity has written about this for the New York Times in a piece called Heat, Water, Fire, How Climate Change is Transforming the Pacific Crest Trail. Hasmin Ortega has through-hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, did it in 2019, and is also with us. Scott Wilkinson is with us as well, Content Development Director with the Pacific Crest Trail Association. And of course, you, our listeners. Let me go to Splog, Splob, who is on the line. <laughs> and you can call 866-733-6786 if you want to call in as well. Splob and Martinez, join us. <laughs> Yes, everybody has trouble with that. I, I had to finally put a sticker on my hat that spelled it out. Okay, is that your but, trail uh, name or something, or your? It is. <laughs> <laughs> so I successfully did a northbound hike in 2015, and I feel very fortunate because it was smooth. Like I just hiked the full six months, took my time, zeros and zeros. Didn't get to Canada till October 26, which is unusual because it was a drought year. So that allowed me to do it. But there were fires. I just luckily missed a lot of them and they didn't encroach on the trail to the point of uh, full closures where compared to like this year, I know people out there personally who skipped hundreds of miles mm-hmm. because of fire. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for sharing your experience. And yes, that, that is a big consideration and, and how things are changing. I just mean, Ortega, am I right that you also have a, a trail name and it's Flamethrower? You want to tell us uh, the story yes. behind that? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so, uh, you know, you start trail families, you know, if you want to, right? Like a lot of people go to hike solo and I eventually uh, had a trail family. Um, you know, they kept trying to give me these names and, and they were all kind of goofy. And, you know, you you sign your, your name on a trail register now and then. So I didn't want to sign some silly name and so I kept you know kind of squatting them, like batting them off like no no I don't like that one and then um one day uh you know I was uh making breakfast and I usually was the only one in my trail family who um made coffee and oatmeal in the morning but because I didn't want to leave camp late uh you know I, I was up at five and and they would hear the blast from my stove and so uh somebody asked so is it, you got a flamethrower there <laughs> and, and that sort of stuck uh, and so that's my, my that's my trail name. <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome. Let me go to Lily in Redwood City. Hi, Lily. Hi. I uh, I was also known as Late Start. That was my trail name. <laughs> Loving these trail names. <laughs> <laughs> so like tell us about in. your experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, set out to do a flip flop uh, through hike of the Appalachian Trail in 2018, and I was hiking with my uh, partner of seven years. And uh, about 200 miles into the trail, we actually broke up. And I decided to um, continue on my hike and uh, sort of left him where he was and hiked a thousand more miles by myself. And I just wanted to offer a few words of encouragement. I mean, climate change is really scary and the unknown of sort of the future. But through hiking, for me at least, was really about the smiles, not the miles. And everyone ends up hiking their own hike. And if you're considering doing a through hike and you're getting intimidated by not just the feet alone, but all of these things that can get in your way to, you know, take a deep breath and, and keep going because it's, it's really worth it and it's really transformative. And it might not be what you expected it to be when you set out, but you get out of it what you need. 
Lily, thank you. I, I really appreciate you saying that and for sharing your, your personal story as well as just encouraging us to think about even with all the kinds of changes that climate change is bringing and the challenges as well that it is worth doing. Um, actually, Hasmin, this listener writes, I've always wanted to do the trail, but I am 50 and out of shape. How to think about taking the first step? What to start with? What would be your advice to this listener? Start hiking. Start start where you are. Uh, it is daunting to think about 26, 50 miles, you know, over three states. And and it, when you think of the totality of it, it is very intimidating. But just start where you are. Hike local. Hike often. Uh, if you have you know have access to a gym or even outdoors, try to you know work on strength training if you can. Uh, one thing that helped me a lot is that I'm also a, a long distance runner. I started running in 1999, a long time ago, and uh, I run many marathons. And I think that the mental training, as, as much as the physical training, helped me uh, to endure discomfort and to and to persevere. You know, just to know that you know things may be bad now, like they say, embrace the suck, but you know they they will get better. And uh, it's just a matter of, you know, being um, uh, consistent with uh, with hiking or whatever, you know, uh, physical uh, training you're doing and and plan as if it's happening. I think uh, a lot of people like to dream about it, but they just it ends there. It just it's, it's a dream. But what are you what step are you taking today to, to make it happen? Uh, how are you planning, uh, you know, your finances? What are you going to do You know, if you have a pet? Uh, you have to start thinking about all these things as if it's happening because it is if you want it to happen. So uh, don't let it stay as a dream. Uh, take a step every day in that direction. You know, plan, plan ahead um, and and make it happen. It's, you know, it does feel like a dream when you're there. But, you know, if you take all of those steps, it, it really is possible. And really husband, is. you've talked about how it, it is actually quite a bit more expensive than people might realize to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. What should people keep in mind? Well, it's not just about having the gear um, and also planning on any recurring bills you'll have while you're gone, um, but also on, you know, you have to uh, pay for a hotel room. If you're, you know, you can share, obviously, with other hikers, share a room in town. You have to pay for resupply, for food as you go along. If stuff breaks, if your tent pole breaks, if you have to replace gear, you have to think about that. Uh, you know, there's there's all these expenses that um, that you have to think about. So uh, there's a con the conventional wisdom on this is about a thousand mile. I'm sorry, a thousand dollars per month uh, budgeted for a through hike. So a five month through hike would be about five thousand dollars, and that would be you know the what you have for the for the through hike. And then if you're leaving your job, if you are looking for work after you're done, you have, you know, I recommend a cushion to have, you know, to kind of, you know, living expenses to get you through that period. Um, and so it can be uh, an expensive, uh, you know, proposition. So, you know, those are things to think about. But again, I think, you know, it's, uh, it, it involves a lot of planning, but it is possible. Are there changes, Scott Wilkinson, in gear in terms of considerations that people should make as a result of climate change that maybe uh, wasn't as big a consideration before? I wouldn't say that there are gear changes as a result of climate change. And, and the reason is simply because the, uh, 
the microclimates that you experience across the 2,600 miles of the trail are so enormously varied to start with that, uh, as you've probably already heard, hikers have to be prepared for anything from 100 degree plus days to sub-freezing nights at high elevations. So um, the, the main the main sort of development in gear, obviously, the big story is just the development of ever lighter gear. Um, there are a lot of hikers that go ultra light. There's some that go ultra, ultra light um, <laughs> down to the point of, of just bare minimalism. Right. And, and it is absolutely true that the less weight you carry, um, the greater your chances of success are. Yeah. But yeah, as far as climate change goes, though, no, I, I think hikers have to be prepared for everything anyway. Well, Danny writes, talk about the role of trail angels on the PCT, people who make sure there's water or supplies on the trail. Rowan, trail angels? They're great. I drank a Dr. Pepper uh, when I when I uh, <laughs> crossed a paved road halfway <laughs> through my little three-day jaunt um, and um, loved every drop. Uh, trail <laughs> angels are very often people who have a personal connection to the trail, either a dream of through hiking or a story about through hiking, or maybe a relative or a friend who has. And sometimes they're just locals who um, get into it because of something like a bad fire season where you start to see all these hikers who are, you know, washing up in your little town and deciding, do I skip five or 600 miles forward and then hike the last bit to Canada and come back next year and things like that. And um, they're a really important part of the trail culture. Um, you know, they bring a great spirit and the sugar and alcohol to the trailheads when um, hikers need it. But also there are just a thousand logistical um, quandaries that a through hike entails that I think trail angels um, can help resolve. And they do so willingly and enthusiastically. Um, everybody you meet on the trail has a great story about trail angels. Hmm. Oh, well, yes. let me go to caller Moon in Sebastopol. Hi, Moon. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Go right ahead. Thanks. Yeah, I'll just piggyback off what was just said about um, trail angels. And I think there's so many interesting metaphors about climate resilience um, on trail, just in the way that we're all going to have to face climate change. There's certain sections, um, particularly in the desert, there's a section where there's just this individual who maintains these water caches that basically make these sections possible. Um, and that's not a state agency. That's not um, a larger group. It's just this one man who's involved with the trail and maintains these um, water caches. So, I think there's just a lot to be said about walking <laughs> in the woods for as long as you do on trail. Um, you see the way that the difference in land influences the climate so intensely and the way that you just feel. Um, and you just need to take that into consideration. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a really interesting um, phenomenon. So, You yeah. mean the differences that you're noticing as a result of the things brought by climate change? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, walking through a forested area um, where there's a lot of greenery, you see that um, basically it's, it's even if it's a 100-degree day, if there's shade, it's something that's manageable. And, for instance, in the Dixie Fire, that section I walked through, and uh, like was mentioned, just the lack of shade um, changes your entire experience and the, the like 
the temperature is just so different. So I think, yeah, that firsthand confrontation of climate change, as was said earlier in the program, yeah. is is something that, that's left a lasting mark on me. And also, yeah, the um, our ability to, well, I guess it's just the everyday changes that you observe, the, the, seeing it firsthand has made me think about how am I preparing for climate change just in my local community here in Sonoma County. So um, that's a big consideration. And um, I think the other thing that was really interesting, you know, it's been mentioned on the program already, um, the need to change our um, expectations for the trail. And for me, it was like the... um, the McKinney fire that broke out prevented me from crossing the California, Oregon border. And then there was a fire that broke out at the U S Canada border that actually prevented me from touching the Northern terminus. And Mm. so the groups that I was with, um, we had a lot of really philosophical um, discussions about those are two points along trail that have a lot of significance as obviously the Northern terminus is huge. But even the California-Oregon border um, is the first state crossing that you have and is, uh, comes after 1,700 uh, miles of walking through California. So there's a lot to be discussed as far as, like, the sadness of not having those moments. But I think there's that recalibration of, like, we're so – I think our culture has a lot of goal-oriented, uh, milestone-oriented – mentality and so to be with this group of people and to reflect on that we weren't going to get these milestone moments i think brought in this deeper discussion about um what is valuable about this experience is it the achievement of it or is it this connection with nature and this opportunity for forming a community outside of our normal lives and the freedom and um joy that that brought to a lot of the people that I hiked with this year. So, well, um, it's just I re- to be said. I really appreciate you saying that, Moon, and it's and it's well said. This person, Ian, writes, I hiked the John Muir Trail section of the PCT this past summer. I started August 14, just after torrential monsoons wreaked havoc on the Death Valley Basin region and finished on September 4th in Yosemite under the smoky conditions due to fires in the valley. All along the trail, there was a lot of erosion and debris strewn all over the trail, sometimes making it difficult to find where the trail was. The day we finished the trail, temperatures were estimated to reach 107 degrees in Yosemite Valley, descending from beautiful mountain meadows to a lingering haze of smoke hanging heavy in the hot air, made it painfully clear that the effects of climate change are going to upend a lot of our ability to recreate and enjoy some of the most pristine natural environments on Earth. Let me... Go to Kyle. Hi, Kyle. In San Francisco, you're on. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I am section hiking, um, but really intimidated about the changes that have occurred with the permitting system for the John Muir section and wondering if you have any suggestions about how to mm-hmm. go about that, um, if I just have to cross my fingers on the lottery or uh, if I should jump in halfway and then go further through Yosemite. Any thoughts? Okay, let me ask, hey, Scott Wilkinson, do you have any thoughts on that, on what Kyla's asking about the permitting, John Muir, so on? 
Yeah, I don't have any particular answer for you, but what I can tell you is if you want to uh, shoot an email to permits at pcta.org, um, my colleagues at the organization will be more than happy to uh, answer that question for you. It gets fairly technical, which is part of the reason I'm reluctant to uh, go into different <laughs> options. So. Yeah, but thanks. Um, well, let me go to this listener, Julia, who writes, Wild depicts one woman's solo journey on the trail. Did you meet any women trail hiking alone? Can you talk about the safety issues surrounding this? I'm very interested in attempting this, but need to reassure my family it's safe or at least a calculated risk. Sounds like a good one for you, Hasmeen. Mm, yes, absolutely. Um, I also hiked uh, solo. I had a friend join me for a couple of days you know, at the beginning, but you know, I, I hiked solo. Uh, met people along the way. Uh, I actually had a hiking partner from Denmark. She and I um, decided to go through the Sierras together. Um, and so, you know, for someone who is is thinking about hiking the trail as a as a female, uh, if they have family who are concerned for their safety, I would suggest that they carry a uh, satellite beacon like a, a Garmin inReach or something that allows their family to know where this person is so that they can communicate, they can send a text every night saying, I'm okay. Uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, hikers, as they go through the trail, there's a signal, there's cell phone signal that they can call and, and stay in touch. Um, and so I think that uh, the trail is also a place where uh, news travels quickly. So if there's ever an issue, uh, the hikers tend to look out for each other and, uh, and solve any issues that may arise. But uh, you know, there there have been some uh, cases of, uh, you know, uh, a few years ago, of a person was harassing a woman and, and you know, or worse. And, and it does happen. You know, obviously, society's issues, uh, you know, don't uh, leave the trail altogether. But I think that uh, hikers in general do a good job of uh, looking out for each other. And there are ways to uh, to be safe and, and feel uh, safe while you're hiking the trail. And also as... We mentioned earlier the Trail Angels. Cynthia writes, my brother went out on the PCT about five years ago, met a Trail Angel outside Grass Valley, and they've been living together ever since. Asmin Ortega, Scott Wilkinson, Rowan Moore-Garrity, thank you all for talking with us about the Pacific Crest Trail, the changes you're seeing, and the magic that also continues. Grace Wan, thanks for producing today's segment. Listeners, thank you for sharing your stories on Forum. I meet a kid. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.